1994, when the U.S. Postal Service released a series of stamps that celebrated 20 legends of the West. Critics pointed out that not a single stamp portrayed a figure of Mexican ancestry. No one viewing the stamps would understand that Mexicans and Mexican-Americans were among the true pioneers in the West's history, that they had a critical role in colonizing, developing, and shaping the culture and history of the region. Greetings, dear listeners of Tres Cuentos, the bilingual podcast dedicated to the literary, historical, and traditional narratives of Latin America. I am Carolina Quiroga-Stoltz, and today we begin a fascinating journey through the stories of Latinx in the United States. About six years ago, when I moved to San Antonio, Texas, I felt I had moved back home. To Cali, Colombia. Everything seemed so familiar, so warm, so beautiful. Little I knew that the Latinos in this part of the world had a long history. One day, while I was participating in an event, I learned a lesson. I was at my table waiting for customers, mostly librarians that were interested in having a bilingual storyteller at their schools. A lady passed by and stopped for the candy I was offering. I looked at her name tag. It was a Hispanic name. I thought she spoke Spanish. After a whole morning speaking English, my brain was exhausted. So I tried to engage in conversation and ask her in Spanish where she was from. ¿De dónde es usted? Her body shook in disapproval of my inquiry. She replied in English, I am from here. My ancestors have been here in Texas for more than 200 years. I was confused that my innocent question seemed to have opened an old wound. After that incident, I decided to get to the bottom of the issue. So I began acquiring books, watching documentaries, and learning that people that looked like me had been here in the U.S. long before these lands became part of the United States. Like me... Many people are still unaware of the richness of Latino literature and history in the United States. I want to shout out a big thanks to Arte Publico Press for their patience and willingness to collaborate with us throughout this season. In this English episode, we are joined with the voices of my partner Don Heimel, Lorena Gothro, and Nicolas Canelos from Arte Publico Press. We will start with a speech written in 1923 by the civic Mexican-American leader Alonso S. Perales. The text can be found in the fantastic book called Herencia, the Anthology of Hispanic Literature of the United States, edited by Nicolás Canelos and published by Oxford University Press. Today's episode reflects on Mexican-American history's invisibility in the U.S. and why we must join our voices to other communities and vote. The Evolution of Mexican-Americans by Alonso S. Perales Sixty-six years have passed since Texas came to be part of the American Union. 
and we Mexican-Americans still are considered outsiders even today. The problem we have before us, gentlemen, is that of improving our condition, and it is our responsibility to find a way to resolve this. In my humble opinion, the solution to the problem is based on three factors, education, unity, and politics. Allow me to consider the first one. It is a known fact that education is one of the basic factors in human progress. It is also known that intellectual advancement will bring with it economic progress and that economic development will result in social evolution. Therefore, it is urgent that we force ourselves to educate our children so that instead of perpetuating the production of migrant day workers, we shall produce men of duty, destiny, or profession. Peoples that make up this cosmopolitan nation do this. Why is it that we do not do the same thing? The day that our earning power is equal to that of our compatriots from other nations will be the day that our standard of living will be equal to theirs. If even then they insist upon seeing us as nothing more than Mexicans, it will not matter at all. For in calling us Mexicans, they honor us, and this should make every enlightened Mexican-American proud. The second issue is unity. Everyone knows that unity equals power. We Mexican-Americans who live in the United States should organize ourselves. However, for our organization to be a reality, it is absolutely indispensable that we be able to count on a number of leaders born in our country and should be intelligent, active, sincere, and honorable men. They should be people who, for the good of our people and our country, work with genuine faith and enthusiasm. We do not need any more leaders that simply talk and talk. As long as men with all of these qualities do not emerge, all efforts towards unity will be in vain. Why do I propose such high standards? Allow me to explain myself. It is necessary for our leaders to be intelligent and sincere people so that they understand profoundly what the phrase consistency of principles means and thus accommodate their conduct to these principles. Upon returning from Washington, I have had the occasion to observe individuals in Texas who seem to be capable of serving as leaders, but who, despite professing to be enthusiastic fighters in support of the well-being of our race, once given the opportunity to enter into politics, the most effective weapon that we have to fight for our rights, they have ended up supporting the so-called candidates of an organization extremely hostile to the concerns of Mexicans. These same individuals pretend to be our leaders and defenders of our people. They pursue dastardly ends under the guise of pro-Mexican campaign, or they misinterpret the phrase consistency of principles. To prove that the secret organization to which I am referring is an enemy of our people, I am going to take the liberty to quote the following declarations that appeared in the official publication of this organization in San Antonio, Texas on December 15, 1923. Even though the city of San Antonio has always been run by white American men, 
our officials never have been elected by a majority of white votes. For that reason, the city perennially has been under the influence of foreign voters who pay no attention to who occupies the administrative positions. The ignorant fools call us foreigners, not understanding that if we vote, clearly we are as American as they are. As such, San Antonio, supposedly an American city and one of the largest in the state, has always been dominated by foreign influences, or at least by those who are against the principles upon which our state and national governments are based. We are sure that we will never be denied, except by those individuals who are more interested in their own personal gains than in the well-being of the state, the county, or the municipality. In San Antonio, the Mexican vote is always a deciding factor in every election, and the white man who gets this Mexican vote benefits, of course. And once again, the newspaper appears with the news of the battle that was just won by white patriotic Americans. As you would expect, in all of the local elections, every candidate, regardless of his background, receives some American support. Notwithstanding, the man from San Antonio who wins is elevated to his post by the votes of the foreigners, Mexicans, and the blacks. One of these days, things are going to change in San Antonio. The Battle of the Alamo was a victory and a symbol for its defenders, despite the fact that the heroes of the bloody conflict died in combat. San Antonio was a scratch on the surface, but in the Battle of San Jacinto, Sam Houston and his small group of valiant Texans deepened the wound. This famous battle will be repeated in San Antonio when, for the good of the population and of this district, the city sends the foreign element on a marathon for tall timber. That day will come. It is as sure as the sky itself. So let us prepare ourselves for the job and success, though slow in coming, will be ours. Here we have some of the popular opinions about our people. Despite those declarations, there were many enthusiastic defenders of our people who, not satisfied with just contributing their votes to the cause, dedicated themselves during the campaign to openly persuading the Mexican community to vote for the so-called candidates of this organization, perhaps to better ensure our political and social improvement. Well, there you have it, gentlemen. The reason why it is absolutely indispensable that our leaders be intelligent, patriotic, sincere, and honorable men whose racial pride surpasses their personal ambitions. The man who is proud of his racial origin almost certainly will never abandon a noble cause like ours to join the ranks of the enemy. We should, then, join together. It is urgent that we study and investigate those men who pretend to be our leaders, for the banner of our desperately needed unity should be nothing less than patriotism and justice. The third factor in the solution of our problem is political activity. We Mexican-Americans of this nation should take more of an interest in our government. Ours is a Republican government, and in the words of the great President Lincoln, a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Accordingly, those of us who are citizens of this country are as American as the best American. Not one person in whose vein flows blood from some other race that makes up this nation has the right, even if he does have the audacity, to tell us that we are not 
100% American. As I have already said, based on ethnicity, history, and geography, nobody, except for the pure American Indian, has more right than we, the descendant of Hidalgo and Cuauhtémoc, to call themselves 100% American. I challenge anyone to refute my assertion. Politics, I repeat, are the most powerful weapon that we have to fight for our rights and to improve our situation in every sense. Accordingly, during elections, we should study the candidates for public office, be they municipal, state, or national. As we are giving the men, we elect the responsibility to govern us. Thus, it is imperative that these men be educated, sincere, fair, and honorable. They should be people who, once in power, are ready to demand justice for our race. We Mexicans, regardless of our citizenship, ask neither for favor nor beg for sympathy, but we do ask for justice. This is our goal and our dream. To demonstrate why it is that we should study the candidates for government positions, I'm going to mention the case of the ex-governor, James E. Ferguson. In 1921, this man unjustifiably made some denigrating and inflammatory comments about our race. These were comments that I did not hesitate to energetically deny from Washington, D.C. once I found out about them. In my letter, I made him see the injustice in his attacks as well as his ignorance about the real merits of Mexicans as a race. In August of this year, he stated that he stood by his statements from 1921 and added that his wife did not, in the least, need the Mexican vote to win. Well, when this man was promoted to the position of governor, how many Mexicans do you think completely ignored his feelings about our race and supported him? With men like Ferguson in power, there is no doubt that our chances of improving in any and every sense of the word are absolutely tremendous, right? Well, now, I wonder how many Mexican-Americans will support Mrs. Ferguson next month, despite her husband's attacks on our race. Here we have, gentlemen, the answer to the question of why it is that we need to study the candidates for government positions. And here we have an opportunity to demonstrate, with facts, that we are proud to have Mexican blood in our veins. Next month, in November, we conscientious Mexican-Americans will have an opportunity to register a protest against the unjustifiable attacks that Mr. Ferguson made against our race. All Mexican-Americans that are truly proud of their ethnic roots should go to the polls on November 4 and vote against Mrs. Ferguson. That is the best way to fight our enemies. So then, gentlemen... When we have educated, enlightened, and organized ourselves, and taken more interest in our government, we will have evolved, and furthermore, we will have salvaged the good name of our worthy and noble Mexican race. Dear listeners, who is ready to vote for an inclusive and just government? Well, before we talk more about the author of the speech, Alonso S. 
Perales and dive into the dramatic history of Mexican Americans in the U.S., let me introduce today's new voices. Reading the excerpt within Perales' speech, Lorena Gothro is the Digital Programs Manager for the U.S. Latino Digital Humanities Program at the University of Houston's Recovering the U.S. Hispanic Literary Heritage. She teaches interdisciplinary courses through the UH Center for Mexican-American Studies. Dr. Gothard received her Ph.D. in English Literature and her M.A. in Hispanic Studies, both from Rice University. She is the daughter of Mexican immigrants and grew up on the U.S.-Mexico border. Reading the last poem is Nicolás Canelos, professor at the University of Houston since 1980. He is founding publisher of the noted Hispanic literary journal The America's Review, formerly Revista Chicano Riqueña, and the nation's oldest and most esteemed Hispanic publishing house, Arte Público Press. Arte Público Press is the largest nonprofit publisher of literature in the United States. Dr. Canelos is the director of a major national research program recovering the U.S. Hispanic heritage of the United States, whose objective is to identify, preserve, study, and make accessible hundreds of thousands of documents written in the regions that have become part of the United States from the colonial period to 1960. Now, let's hear more about the oldest and largest publisher of U.S. Hispanic literature, Arte Público Press. Established in 1979, Arte Público Press is the principal provider of cultural materials on Latino life in the United States for general and educational audiences. The press publishes fiction and non-fiction books for all ages and interests. Piñera Books, its imprint for children's and young adult literature, provides bilingual literary materials that authentically and realistically portray themes, characters, and customs unique to U.S. Latino culture. A nonprofit press located at the University of Houston. Its books are available from your favorite neighborhood or online store and at artepublicopress.com. I assure you, they are fantastic. Well, I am ready to grab the bull by its horns. That means brace yourselves for some useful and enlightening history lesson. Alonso S. Perales, the author of this text we heard, was a Mexican-American leader who got deeply involved in the fights for equality after the First World War. Perales was a founding member of the Order of the Sons of America in 1921 and later in 1929 of the League of United Latin American Citizens, LULAC, one of the oldest organizations to defend the civil rights of Mexican-Americans. The speech, The Evolution of Mexican-Americans, given in 1924, was a call for action and showed how divided the opinions were among Mexican-Americans despite the increasing violence towards them. So, let's review that painful chapter in the U.S. history. I must warn you that 
some of the following descriptions are a bit unsettling. The first source I am pulling to talk about it comes from the website Refusing to Forget. It is a project initiated in February 2013 by a group of professors from the National Association of Chicano Chicana Studies in San Antonio, Texas, to discuss strategies to remind people of the period of widespread anti-Mexican violence on the Texas-Mexico border between 1910 and 1920. From the website Refusing to Forget, we learn that some of the worst racial violence in the United States history took place along the Mexico-Texas border from 1910 to 1920. The dead included women and men, the aged and the young, longtime residents and recent arrivals. They were killed by strangers, neighbors, by vigilantes, and at the hands of local law enforcement officers and the Texas Rangers. I feel like I am reading news from last week. The horrifying account does not end there. Some of the dead were summarily executed after being taken captive or shot under the flimsy pretext of trying to escape. Some were left in the open to rot. Others desecrated by being burned, decapitated, or tortured by means such as having beer bottles rammed into their mouths. Extra-legal executions became so common that a San Antonio reporter observed that finding dead bodies of Mexicans, suspected for various reasons of being connected with the troubles, has reached a point where it creates little or no interest. It is only when a raid is reported or an American, that is a white person, is killed that the ire of the people is aroused. In a telegram to President Woodrow Wilson in 1916, residents of Kingsville pleaded, One or more of us may have incurred the displeasure of someone, and it seems only necessary for that someone to whisper our names to an officer, to have us imprisoned and killed without an opportunity to prove in a fair trial the falsity of the charges against us. It was as if the old witch hunt had now set its interest on people of Mexican origin too. Sadly, the violence was welcomed, celebrated, and even instigated at the highest levels of society and government. It looks to me that a hundred years later things have not changed much. Let us remember the famous phrase of our current president, there were very fine people on both sides. I remember that not too long ago in 2016, a candidate for Congress from Tennessee, Rick Tyler, placed a billboard advertising, let's make America white again. It appears that his racist desire echoes the Texas papers from 1910 to 1920, where the following idea was promoted. A serious surplus population needs to be eliminated. Last, the website Refusing to Forget remind us that as thousands fled to Mexico and decapitated bodies floated down the Rio Grande, Politicians proposed concentration camps for those of Mexican descent. Also, killing was the alternative for whoever refused to leave. 
Thus, coming across the skeletons of executed people in the South Texas brush became part of the landscape. Yet, the big question is how it all got to that. And worse, why are we still stuck in that wheel of hate? To answer at least the first question, we will have to go further back in time to when Mexican-Americans were left out of the picture. In the book, Mexican-American Voices, a documentary reader edited by Stephen Mintz, we are reminded that an unconscious ethnocentrism pervades the teaching of Mexican-American history. Let's remember that old saying once attributed to Winston Churchill, but of unknown origin. History is written by victors. Now, that does not mean that they are telling the truth or that what they're saying is accurate. For decades, U.S. history was retold from when the English arrived in Virginia in 1607 and with the Pilgrims in Plymouth in 1620, often leaving out that the first European explorations of the U.S. territory began a century earlier when Spanish explorers reached the coasts of Florida in 1513. It is also skipped that Lucas Vázquez de Ayón established the first European settlement on the coast of Georgia in 1526. On the other hand, there is the assumption that most migration waves came from Europe, when actually large migrations also came from China, Japan, and Latin America. Stephen Mintz makes an interesting observation that it hadn't crossed my mind. The phrase Mexican-Americans itself, while convenient, it is ethnocentrically Anglo. For as inhabitants of the Americas, Mexicans living south of the Rio Grande are as Americans as citizens of the United States. On the topic of exclusion, Stephen Mintz continues saying settlers from Mexico have been living in Arizona, California, Colorado, New Mexico, and Texas for as long as Europeans have lived in the East Coast. Yet, this history is largely unknown to most U.S. citizens, insofar as it is recognized at all. Mexican-American history is treated as a subset of Western history. For the past few years, we have heard so much about how fast the Mexican-American population has grown. According to the Pew Research Center, as of July 2020, the U.S. Hispanic population reached a record of 60.6 million. Latinos accounted for about half, 52% of all U.S. population growth over this period. They are the country's second largest racial or ethnic group behind white non-Hispanics. Yet, before you get stuck in the numbers and project how much the country will change in the future... Stephen Mintz reminds us that Mexican-Americans are not just growing due to births and immigration. They are among the nation's oldest communities with a rich and complex history. In other words, they did not magically spring up in the land from dawn to dusk. Part of that complexity consists in their mestizaje, mixing, 
been descendants of Spanish, Native Americans, and Africans. Besides, the labels of this population have changed over time, from Mexican, Tejano, Hispano, Californio, Mexican-American, La Raza, Chicano, Chicana, and Latinx, Latino, Latina. But let us go back to the threat of Mexican-Americans being omitted from the nation's collective history. Stephen Mintz says, A perspective that privileges the East Coast and the nation's English heritage relegates Mexican-American history, mistakenly, to the margins. The history of the United States is commonly told in terms of westward advance from the original English colonies, a perspective that downplays the Hispanic role in the exploration, settlement, and development of the territory that now comprises the United States. I think that in the last few years, we have seen increasing attention towards African-American history in the U.S., their heroes and struggles. Their impact goes as far as music, films, TV shows, and political leaders. Whereas in the Latino community, except for refugees and undocumented migrants, we have not seen such devoted attention. Or am I watching the wrong TV shows? So far, Latinos are still in the background of major TV shows. Is it because of discrimination? Or is it us? Or both? Is there another explanation? Have Latinos moved on? Is it possible that when people's economic situation improves, they tend to abandon the fight since they do not want to compromise the new sense of security and accomplishment? Of course, this does not apply to all, but it is still surprises me seeing Latinos in ads supporting the current president. I recall hearing that many Latinos had heavily supported Mr. Trump in the past election. I was shocked. Why? Wasn't it obvious that he disregards different cultures and considers them somewhat inferior? The answer to my question oscillates between two paths. But of course, there could be other reasons. One, some Latino or Hispanic natives are not aware of their ancestors' past. That is something that the African-American community is really good at. Their history might not yet be accurately told in schools, but among their families, they do not forget, and they pass it on. Second, once immigrants have lived here for a while, they become more native and feel threatened by newcomers. In other words, those new arrivals come to compete and shake the economic security of those who have been here for a while. At least, that is what politicians and Fox News keep telling them. Part of this dissociation with others of similar origin is that the stories of Latinos in the U.S. have been regarded as regional stories. That is, that their impact has not had a wide repercussion on the rest of the country. If we treat their stories as such, then we keep them divided and docile. In the end, everyone feels alone. Divide and conquer as the Romans willed it. About the matter, Stephen Mintz tells us that Mexican-American history was mistakenly treated as a subset of Western history, as if they were latecomers to the United States and as an insular, inward 
turning people whose lives were disconnected from the major events and themes of the U.S. history. From this angle, Mexican-American history began with the Texas Revolution and not with the first Spanish explorers in the early 16th century. Due to this, until the early 20th century, many non-Hispanics cling to the flawed assumption that the role of Mexican-Americans in U.S. history was marginal. I supposed some keep thinking that Mexican-Americans are still cooking and cleaning tables at restaurants. Mintz continues saying that, The treatment of Mexican-Americans does not shed a positive light on the U.S. collective past. It is a history involving the loss of land and natural resources, labor exploitation, discrimination, deportation, and denial of equal citizenship rights. I say, it is time to make some movies about it. If at this point you are eager to hear more about the history of Mexican-Americans, find some heroes and read about epic journeys, I suggest you get your hands on some of the books published by Arte Publico Press. You can start with Herencia, the anthology of Hispanic literature of the United States. In the meantime, we are moving on to the topic of Manifest Destiny and how it led to centuries of oppression, racism, exclusion, and the obliteration of many people's stories. What is the Manifest Destiny? Where did it come from? And how has it affected the way the U.S. sees itself? In 1845, the newspaper editor John O. Sullivan coined the term Manifest Destiny, to describe the essence of a mind's set that believed that pioneers had a divine obligation to stretch their noble republic boundaries to the Pacific Ocean. At the core of the manifest was the pervasive belief in white cultural and racial superiority. Native Americans had long been perceived as inferior, in need to be civilized. Thus, by association, the same applied to Hispanics who ruled Texas and California's lucrative ports. Simply put, to Anglo-Americans, the Spanish-speaking people were backward. It is striking that the idea still lingers and spreads in the 21st century, as it was in the 19th century. Like then, today is still used to justify wars to explore the old assumption that Mexican-Americans are considered an inferior race, we must open the book The Latino Condition, edited by Richard Delgado and Jean Stefanik. In Chapter 20, you'll find the article A Separate and Inferior Race by José Luis Morín. Here we learn that, absent from the collective consciousness of the United States, are the wars of territorial conquest that took place in the 1800s. The article explains that by the end of the U.S.-Mexican War in 1848, Mexicans and their lands were absorbed by the United States. The conquests of the 1800s were rooted in the long-lasting and deeply held desire of many founders of the United States to construct an empire. 
20 years earlier in the 1780s, Jefferson avowed that the U.S. should take over the Spanish Empire piece by piece. These expansionist designs were not simply a whim of Jefferson. They became an integral part of the ambitions of the U.S. policymakers that followed. A strategy to achieve the goal was to resort to slogans such as Manifest Destiny. It was now the divine right of Anglo-Saxon U.S. citizens to expand their territory based on supposed racial and cultural superiority. José Luis Morín points out that the influence of the racist assumptions inherent in the notion of the white man's burden, together with manifest destiny, provided the requisite justification for Anglo-American territorial conquest and domination. From then on, according to Morín, a brutal marketing strategy took over where news and media combined pushed the agenda about the greatness of the race, religion, and culture of the United States. It feels like today. Maureen claims that so deeply held were these beliefs that all non-Anglo-Saxons, even those from Europe, were considered threats to the nation. Even from very early in the U.S. history, Latin Americans were singled out as racial inferior to Anglo-Saxon Americans. James Buchanan denounced the imbecile and indolent Mexican race. The foreign policy initiative that bannered the idea of U.S. hegemony across the continent was the Monroe Doctrine of 1823. The policy validated the intervention over the region of Latin America and the Caribbean. Morin assures that many historians agree that the Monroe Doctrine still remains influential in U.S.-Latin American relations. By reinforcing the belief in the inferiority of the Latin American race, the U.S. government could justify the numerous interventions throughout the region, including orchestrating unrest followed by supporting dictators indebted to the United States government. Morin reminds us that between 1898 and 1934, the United States used its military forces to invade and or occupy Latin American countries on more than 30 occasions. And despite high-minded rhetoric and ostensible nobility of purpose, not a single U.S. intervention led to the installation of democracy. An example that comes to mind are the military invasions and occupations of the Dominican Republic in 1903, 1904, 1914, 1916 to 1924, and 1965. These interventions provided control over the country's economy and led eventually, in 1930, to the dictatorship of Rafael Leonidas Trujillo. We have mentioned him before. To refresh your memories, go back to episode 19 on Latino authors, The Beautiful Soul of Don Damian by Juan Bosch. But let us fly back from the beautiful Caribbean island to the topic of the supposed inferiority of Latin American race. Morin points out that in the 1800s, political cartoons in leading newspapers around the country were rife 
with demeaning and racial stereotypes of the peoples of Cuba, Puerto Rico, Hawaii, and the Philippines. One cartoon showed Uncle Sam representing the U.S. as the teacher in a classroom with a bunch of dark-skinned, ugly, and unruly children that represented the people of Cuba, Puerto Rico, Hawaii, and the Philippines. Now we must ask, why were the U.S. media and the U.S. government engaged in such a despicable campaign of dividing the world's population into superior and inferior? into first world and third world countries? Simple. If their Anglo-Saxon population was convinced of their superiority, it would be so easy to get them to support whatever imperialistic action the U.S. wanted to take towards others. At this moment, my partner Don Heimel tells me that there were people that did question that despicable campaign. However, The government ignored their claims. Morin writes, These powerful cartoon images offered a vision of a government carrying out a benign mission among inherently inept peoples. Then, Anglo-Saxon Americans would be at ease if the suffering of other races was due to their racial weakness, rather than from imperialistic greed for wealth and power. Contrary to the long assumption that Mexican-Americans were mostly illegal immigrants, the truth is that by the end of the U.S.-Mexican War in 1848, approximately 75,000 Mexicans living on the lands of what would become the states of Arizona, California, Colorado, Kansas, New Mexico, Nevada, Oklahoma, Utah, and Wyoming, now acquired by the U.S. through the war, were forced to decide whether to become U.S. citizens. Then, how did the U.S. ended up absorbing all these extensive territories that had been in Spanish hands for the last two centuries, but that before had been in Native Americans' hands? History tells us that President James K. Polk stationed troops at the Mexican border in 1845 to stir the hornet's nest. He was seeking the annexation of Texas. And in the end, as we saw, he got much more. It worked. Eventually, the war began in 1846. And in 1848, peace was signed under the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. Little the Mexicans know that although citizenship was offered to them for inhabiting the U.S. newly acquired lands, the offer was just a diversion. Morin indicates that Mexicans within the territories acquired by the United States were reduced to second-class citizenship, subjected to the loss of their lands despite pre-existing land grants given by Spain before Mexico's independence, and denied the right to vote and political representation. The Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo was modified over time to accommodate the concerns of certain Congress members over the racial threat that Mexicans constituted. I will read the Article 9 of the treaty. The Mexicans, who in the territories aforesaid, shall not preserve the character of citizens of the Mexican Republic conformably with what is stipulated in the preceding article, 
shall be incorporated into the Union of the United States and be admitted at the proper time to be judged of by the Congress of the United States to the enjoyment of all rights of citizens of the United States. In sum, Mexican Americans were left with no lands and no rights. They did not belong to Mexico or the United States, at least until further notice. A similar issue occurred to Puerto Ricans when in 1917 they were made U.S. citizens with the adoption of the Jones Act by the U.S. Congress. But the adoption did not grant jury trial and similar rights to Puerto Ricans. Senator Foraker said, We considered very carefully what status in a political sense we would give to the people of Puerto Rico, and we reported that provision not thoughtlessly. We concluded that the inhabitants of that island must be either citizens or subjects or aliens. We did not want to treat our own as aliens, and we do not propose to have any subjects. Therefore, we adopted the term citizens. In adopting the term citizen, we did not understand, however, that we were giving to those people any rights that the American people do not want them to have. In other words, yes, you can be citizens, but no, you cannot have the same rights as our citizens. You cannot vote, but we can send you to war to fight and die for our freedom. I still remember the senseless image of Mr. Trump tossing paper towels at Puerto Ricans after the horrible Hurricane Maria had hit them. It was as if he were throwing t-shirts to a mob of imaginary fans. And this is how we arrived at the subject of Americanization. As I mentioned before, after the annexation of several Western territories to the United States, Mexican inhabitants realized that joining the party was accompanied by being left out of it. That is that they were subjected to discrimination and loss of political representation, lands, and resources, but they remained here. Stephen Mintz, editor of the book Mexican American Voices, tells us that the battles of the Alamo and Goliath were used to fuel the anti-Mexican sentiment. By 1850, Anglos outnumbered Mexican-Americans in Texas by 20 to 1. From then on, violent intimidation kept Mexican-Americans from the polls. In South Texas, large landowners and political bosses used their economic power to manipulate the votes of Mexican-American cowboys and laborers. We can only wish that nothing keeps any citizen from the polls in the next election. It was only a matter of time for most of the lands owned before by Mexican-Americans, stretching from California to New Mexico and Texas, to fall in Anglo hands. Why? Mints say that Mexican landowners were required to validate their land claims in the American legal system, using English-speaking attorneys. They also carried the burden of proof. Legal proceedings dragged on for years, 
and many landowners were forced to sell their land to pay their legal bills. It was all part of the plan to own the territory and impose the English language. And how the loss of lands affected the Mexican-Americans? Mintz points out that Mexican-American men were forced to support themselves as migratory and skilled laborers in mines and on farms, ranches and railroads, as servants, laundresses, and farm laborers. Children were required to attend separate schools or were barred from education altogether. Because if you keep them ignorant, they will not revolt, or so they thought. There is evidence that in many schools, racial etiquette defined proper demeanor and behavior for Mexicans. Some teachers demanded that in the presence of Anglos, Mexicans should assume a deferential body posture and respectful tone of voice. Anglo culture was educating a new generation of obedient servants. In consequence, the curriculum of Mexican students emphasized domestic science and manual training. My partner, Don Heimel, tells us that as late as the 1950s, Texas had laws prohibiting the speaking of Spanish on state government property. He remembers this because as he was growing up in El Paso, he got the Spanish he knows outside the house, not at home and not at school. On the subject, the Texas State Historical Association indicates that on June 3, 1973, Governor Dolph Briscoe signed into law the Bilingual Education and Training Act, SB 121, enacted by the 63rd Texas Legislature. This event marked a historic turning point in the education of Mexican-American students in the state. The bilingual education aspects of the law were new and unprecedented. The centerpiece was the mandate that all Texas elementary public schools enrolling 20 or more children of limited English ability in a given grade level must provide bilingual instruction. That a language other than English could be used in the instruction was especially significant because it abolished the English-only teaching requirement imposed by state laws dating as far as 1918. However, for the time that bilingual education was not in place, that is the first part of the 20th century, just like African Americans and other communities, Mexican Americans became a marginalized population, forced to live in segregated neighborhoods called barrios and colonias. Curiously, another phenomenon happened parallel to the ethnic prejudice towards Mexican Americans. The Spanish Southwest heritage became romanicized, but always making a clear distinction that Spanish people were not Mexican people. The old tactic of divide and conquer. As of today, among specific Latino communities, there is still a feeling of resentment towards that Spanish heritage. Whereas among other communities, there is a proud claim of just Spanish blood, no Indian, no African. People don't get it. Heritage is a social construct that makes you feel special, but can become an obstacle when it comes to developing empathy for other people's struggles. In 1850, the prominent Mexican-American Pablo de la Guerra a delegate to the California Constitutional Convention, 
member of the state Senate, while speaking about injustice to the California Senate, said, Well, sir, the war took place, and we, after doing our duty as citizens of Mexico, were sold like sheep abandoned by our nation, and as it were, awoke from a dream. Strangers, on the very soil on which we were native and to the manner born. We passed from the lands of Mexico to that of the United States. But we had the consolation of believing that the United States, as a nation, was more liberal than our own. We had the greatest respect for an American. Every American who came to our country was held in higher estimation than even one of our countrymen. And I call upon every American who visited us to bear testimony to this fact. And after being abandoned by our own country and annexed to the United States, we thought that we belonged to a nation the most civilized, the most humane, a nation that was the foremost of planting the banner of liberty on every portion of its dominions a nation that was the most careful in protecting the just rights of its citizens. But now, the Mexicans have become foreigners in their own land. Well, let's move on. On the subject of homelessness in the book The Latino Condition, we find the article Occupied Mexico by Ronald Takaki, where he recounts that in California, for example, while Mexicans were granted suffrage, they found that democracy was essentially for Anglos only. Dominant in the state legislature, Anglos enacted laws aimed at Mexicans. An anti-vagrancy act, described as the Greaser Act, defined vagrants, that is, homeless people, as all persons who were commonly known as greasers, or the issue of Spanish or Indian blood and who went armed and were not peaceable and quiet persons. Of course, Texas did not hesitate to impose a similar villainy. Takaki says, Compared to California, the political prescription of Mexicans in Texas was more direct. There, Mexicans were granted suffrage, but only in principle. A traveler observed that the Mexicans in San Antonio could elect a government of their own if they voted, but added. Such a step would be followed, however, by a summary revolution. And it did. In 1863, after a contested election, a regional newspaper declared, We are opposed to allowing an ignorant crowd of Mexicans to determine the political questions in this country where a man is supposed to vote knowingly and thoughtfully. Well, to that, I say, more than 150 years have passed, and it is time for Mexican Americans and Latinx Americans to let the U.S. government hear our voices, to claim for equality and justice for each one of the inhabitants of this country, regardless of their status, gender, ethnicity, and heritage. However, 
do not think that Mexican-Americans have settled for their lot and decided to watch life pass them by. Since as early as 1920, the League of United Latin American Citizens, LULAC, began defending the civil rights of Mexican-Americans. Then around 1960, the voices of many Mexican-Americans were heard again. They called themselves Chicanos and Chicanas. Stephen Mintz tells us that the term comes from Nahuatl, the language spoken by the Aztecs, meaning the poorest of the poor. The Hispanic civil rights movement that began in the 60s inherited a legacy of resistance against colonialism, segregation, and exploitation. This legacy had its roots in the writings of syndicalists, editorials, and defenders of the culture. Specifically, the chronicles of Nicasio and Jovita Idar tried to raise the critical thinking skills of their readers. If you're curious about the Mexican-American movement, I will suggest some links. So all you have to do is check the transcript. In the meantime, dear listener, I'm going to leave you with a poem by Américo Paredes, who in the 1930s wrote in English and in Spanish, articulating the cultural and economic devastation of his generation. Nicolás Canelo's director of Arte Público Press is reading the poem that you can find in the book Herencia an anthology of the Hispanic literature of the United States, published by Oxford University Press. The Mexico Texan by Américo Paredes The Mexico Texan is one funny man who lives in the region that's north of the Gran, of Mexican father he born in this part, and sometimes he rules it deep down in his heart. For the Mexico Texan, he's no got a land. He stomped on the neck on both sides of the grand. The damn gringo lingo he cannot speak. It twisters the tongue and it makes you feel sick. A citizen of Texas, they say that he is. But when they call him the Mexican Greece, soft talk and hard action he can't understand. The Mexico Texan, he no got a land. If he cross the river, it is just as bad. Oh, high Polish Spanish, he break up his head. American customs, those people no like. They hate that Miguel, they should call him El Mike. And Mexican born, why they jeer and they hoot? Go back to the gringo, go lick his boot. In Texas, he's Johnny in Mexico, Juan. But the Mexican Texan, he no got a land. Elections come round and the gringos are loud. They pat on his back and they make him so proud. They give him mezcal and the barbecue meat. They tell him, amigo, we can't be defeat. But after election, he no got a lamb. Except for a few with their cunning and craft, he counts just as much as a knot to the left. And they say everywhere, he's a burden and drag. He no got a country, he no got a flag, he no got a voice, all he's got is his hand. To work like the burro, he no got a land. And only one way can his sorrows all drown. He'll get drunk as hell when next day they come round. For he has one advantage of all other men. Through the Mexico Texan, he no got a land. He can get him so drank that he think he would fly both September the 16th and 4th of July.
and that is all for today. We will be back in two weeks with more Latinx literature in the U.S. Until the next cuento. Adiós, adiós. Tres Cuentos is an exercise of creative writing, researching, and retelling. This podcast was produced, recorded, and edited by Carolina Quiroga Stoltz. Proof listening and proof reading by Don Hymel. Remember to follow Tres Cuentos on Facebook and Instagram. Also, you can find us on iTunes or on Stitcher and Spotify. You can also visit our website, www.trescuentos.com. The music and sound effects were downloaded from the YouTube audio library. The list of credits per song and the sources of this story can be found in the transcript. Thanks for listening. Adios, adios. <laughs>